For those of you who I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Ken Bush. I'm a retired Army chaplain, retired PCA teaching elder. From time to time, I get the honor to address you from the pulpit. And on this first Sunday of Advent is one of those days. In Tolkien's classic uh, book, The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins and a creature known as Gollum play a deadly game of riddles in the darkness of an underground cave. Those of you who read the book remember that part of the story. And one of Gollum's riddles goes like this. It cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. It lies, it lies behind stars and under hills and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life, kills laughter. Do you, do you know the answer? Well, the answer is the dark. Darkness is often associated with uh, the unknown and times of evil and fear. The prophet Isaiah delivered his message in just such a time of darkness, a time of destruction, death, and despair brought on by the Assyrian invasion of Israel in 734 BC. In judgment for her rebelliousness, Israel's cities were to be destroyed and her surviving people sent into captivity. But the greater darkness, darkness of which this outward judgment is only a symptom was their inward spiritual darkness resulting from sin. Darkness we still see today in our own hearts and in the world around us every day. Sometimes the barbarians at the gate are not a conquering foreign army as they were in Isaiah's case, but are individual, cultural and moral and spiritual decay and its consequences. Against the backdrop of such a, a despairing darkness, Isaiah brings a message of hope and deliverance. In Isaiah 9, he promises that the light of Christ, the Messiah, will deliver us from the present reign of darkness brought on by human sin and point us to a future glory through supernatural wisdom beyond human limits. Hear these words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, which were read for you earlier when we had our candle lighting. But hear them once more. Hear the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the shadow in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increases of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let us pray. God of power and love, you, have, you are revealed to us in your word in accounts of prophecy and fulfillment that direct our attention to Jesus the Messiah. Illumine us now as we hear your word proclaim that we may open our hearts to him, yearn for his coming in glory, and serve him with joy. Amen. Handel's Oratorio, the Messiah, is one of the world's most well-loved pieces of classical music. Uh, you hear just about everywhere this time of year. Although it's not uniquely a Christmas oratorio, it's really written for um, Easter, the Easter season, it has a Christmas section. That oratorio was written using 81 verses from 14 different books of the King James Version of the Bible, or in the case of some of the Psalms from the Book of Common Prayer. Of these verses, Isaiah is the most frequently quoted book, 21 times, to include the words of our text for this morning's message. The words of Isaiah 9-6 have become so embedded, in my mind at least, and I think in many of yours, with the music and the words and the cadence of it all, that it's hard for me to read Isaiah 9-6 without kind of almost breaking into song, <laughs> although it is probably a good thing for you that I can restrain myself. <laughs> for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. According to Isaiah's prophecy, the Messianic King will be given four royal names. There are lots of names in the scripture for Jesus in the Old and in the Messiah in the Old and Jesus in the New. Um, but there's something special about this particular uh, passage. It's, it's very commonly read, not only during the Christmas season, but other times when they talk about the names of these, of the royal names of the Messianic king. Uh, there are names by which he is to be addressed and which reveals something about his character. And so during these four weeks of Advent, the teaching elders at Grace are going to try to bring clarity to who this Christ of Christmas really is. By examining each of these names, wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and their significance. Today we're going to focus on the royal name of Wonderful Counselor. Uh, I will follow a simple outline, just what does the name mean and why does it matter? Now there'll be some points under it, but for those of you who take notes, that's the simple outline. What does the name mean and what difference does it make to us? Well, some translations separate the titles in Isaiah into several different, in several different ways. The best translations pair the words into four messianic titles that I've read to you. It's clear from the text that the words are to be understood as four couplets of two words each. To understand what the first title, Wonderful Counselor, means, it's still helpful, I think, to look at each word separately and then put them together. And then we'll talk about the significance. The word wonderful, um, as used in the scriptures, means a lot more than the kind of bland way we use it today, right? And one commentator points out, the word is much weightier than the way it's used in normal conversation today. We say things are wonderful if they're pleasant, lovely, or 
uh, the least bit likable. <laughs> and so you hear, you hear the word wonderful used all the time, and some uh, young people use it a lot on different things. And it just becomes almost overused and bland when we say it. So we hear wonderful counselor, you know, okay, that's kind of cool, just passes off our lips, or we hear it in our ears, but we really don't stop to think about what it means. The Hebrew word here is the word, there's a noun, pele, which, whose root carries with it the idea of extraordinary, wonder, mysterious, inscrutable, hard to understand, unfathomable. In the Old Testament, it's used for God's miracles performed for the, on behalf of the people of Israel. Uh, most notably, the Exodus miracles, freeing the people of Israel from slavery and bondage. And when used of God, it generally has the idea of being more than extraordinary, miraculous, going beyond our human ability to comprehend or accomplish or understand something. Uh, I guess the more literal translation of it would be incomprehensible. Jesus the Messiah is wonderful in a way that's mind-boggling, difficult to grasp, difficult to completely understand. Now, when we hear the second word, when we hear the word counselor, in our therapy-minded culture, we usually default to the idea of a modern-day therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist, right? When we think of the word counselor, that's normally what comes to our mind. It's because in our modern-day use of the word, that's the most common use. But the context in Isaiah is clearly political, not psychological. We use the word in a similar way today when we talk about a counselor to the president. The Hebrew word, yoetz, comes from the verb meaning to advise, counsel, purpose, devise, or plan. In ancient Israel, a counselor often stood beside the king, I mean literally stood beside the king, uh, giving advice, interpreting official documents, offering direction, and guiding the king's judgments. Sometimes in the Old Testament, a wise king like Solomon is, is giving guidance to his people. That, that could be portrayed as being a counselor. Although most of the time it was a person who advised the king, sometimes the king himself, like in Solomon's case, is known for his wisdom and giving advice and counsel to his people. In the Hebrew text, the word is not even a noun. It's a participle. For those of you who are English-type people, you kind of know what that means. But it means it functions as a noun, but it's kind of got this continuing idea. So it could be better translated as the counseling one or the one who counsels. Uh, it suggests something that's dynamic. It's not just a passive disengaged ruler. He's, he's the actively counseling one. Not just then, but today. We'll talk more about that when we talk about the significance of the word. He gives guidance and purpose to the kingdom over which he presides every moment. Now, if we put these two words together, wonderful counselor, they might literally be translated as wonder of a counselor. As Dr. Gary Smith writes in his commentary, wonderful counselor combines the idea of doing something wonderful, extraordinary, miraculous with the skill of giving wise advice, making plans, and counsel. As the Son of God, Jesus, the divine creator and sustainer of all things, embodies the meaning of the title wonderful counselor. In his incarnation, which we anticipate in Advent and celebrate on Christmas, Jesus comes into the world by becoming one of us in order to reveal the wonderful counsel of God. This wise counsel transcends human wisdom because Jesus is the God-man. He's not just 
a man. He's God incarnate. We're reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So that's the words. But why does it matter? What difference does it make? Well, the great Presbyterian theologian, the late 1800s, J.A. Alexander, gives us some insight into that question in his commentary, The Prophecies of Isaiah. He, he describes the wonderful counselor as having three roles, and that's kind of where we're going to take the second part. Three roles. The authoritative teacher of the truth. The, the wise administrator of the church and the confidential advisor of the individual believer. So, authoritative teacher of the truth, wise administrator of the church, and a confidential advisor of the individual believer. As I reflected on these roles, and it's, when you're going through Isaiah's commentaries to try to find something on these names, it's not a lot. Because it's a, there's, there's you know, so many chapters in Isaiah, and Isaiah usually takes almost three volumes to get into a commentary that's halfway decent on it. And so you can only like put a little bit in, in each of the things. And J. Alexander only has that one sentence in there on, that, on, that, on this series in 9.6. But as I reflected on that one sentence, I realized that whether Dr. Alexander intended or not, they line up with Jesus' threefold offices, his classic threefold offices, prophet, priest, and king. First, it matters that Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he's the authoritative teacher of the church. The Heidelberg Catechism, which I, which I love, is one of the early Reformed confessions, but I love it because it's divided into 52 sections, one for each Sunday, and it's probably the most devotional of all the catechisms that are out there. In other words, the ones that you can easily read and kind of reflect on. And it, it calls Christ our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. So as a second person of the Trinity, Calvin says, he is in every respect the highest and most perfect teacher. That makes sense. The second person of the Trinity, he knows all that the Father knows. Jesus reveals everything we need to know about God, his redemptive plan, and how to live according to the gospel. In stark contrast to King Ahaz, whose decisions Isaiah reminds us brought ruin to his people, Jesus the Messiah brings supernatural wisdom to God's people, counsel that goes beyond mere human wisdom. Jesus the Messiah is the source of true wisdom because as a writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter one, verses one and two, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It is true wisdom because, as Dr. Oswald writes in his commentary, it knows that in weakness is strength, in surrender is victory, and in death is life. That's contrary to, to generally speaking, human wisdom, is it not? Who doesn't see, who wouldn't see 
weakness as being strength, or surrender as being victory, or death as being life. And yet in the gospel, that's exactly the way we look at things. If we want to know how things were designed to be, that is God's original design and intent for the world, and if we want to know how things really are as a result of the fall, and if we want to know God's plan to restore all things to their original design, then we must turn to the wisdom and counsel of Christ. And basically, when I talk to people about the gospel, that's exactly where I start. I talk to them about how, how things were created by God, the perfect design. But then the fall of man ruined that design. And as a result of the ruined design, all the brokenness that we have in the world comes. Brokenness of the individual heart, brokenness in the relationships with others, the creation of idols by our hearts to replace God that we trust in instead of him. And then I talk about the fact that because of that, you know, God wants to restore that original design, and he does that through Jesus Christ and his coming. Through him, through Christ, we are guided not by, the, by results or what is popular, but, but what is true and right. And we find that truth only in the written word of God, which the Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us, principally teaches us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. That's a simple definition of what the Bible contains. What we are to believe about God and what duty God requires of us. Because he is God, the Messiah is a source of supernatural wisdom beyond human limits. While we will know him fully only at his second coming, which we also remember in Advent, even now we can seek his wisdom by seeking his word. Second, it matters that Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he's the wise administrator of the church. I had to think about that one for a little while. What does that mean? Because, you know, we talk about Jesus being the head of the church. So what does that mean to us? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism, I'll go back to that again, describes Jesus as our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. As king, the head of the church, Jesus governs us corporately and individually. He governs us by his word and spirit through the teaching and ruling ministries of the church that are embodied in the service of the church's teaching and ruling elders. And also through the ministry of individual believers coming alongside one another, helping one another. Oftentimes when um, I do counseling, I, I run into the fact that most people skip right up and go straight to a counselor when they have a problem. That's why they end up in, when I was a chaplain, that's why they usually ended up in my office. A lot of times it was because they weren't believers and they didn't have that first step of self-counseling and, and using the word of God in their own lives. And then secondly, they didn't have a body of Christ to come alongside each other and to counsel and help one another, which is part of the calling that we all have to each other. And so they skip right up to the level of going to a counselor like myself or any number of professional counselors like we have in our, in our church. But God wants to work through both the ministry of his teaching and ruling elders in the church, the session, and through the ministry of believers coming alongside one another. Not only does he govern us, but he also promises to guard and keep us in the gospel. In spite of sin and brokenness, 
The Lord is on mission, and he will accomplish his purposes. As a sovereign king, he sees the big picture. Sometimes we don't see that big picture. And I've been involved uh, earlier in my life in helping uh, church planning efforts, and uh, sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. And sometimes you look at it and you think, well, why does God allow that? I, I can't answer that question, but I know one thing. It doesn't catch him by surprise, and he uses it all for his purposes, individually and corporately, somehow. He has perfect understanding. He has a redemptive plan, a grand strategy to bring the universe back into submission and restore all that was lost in Eden's garden. That's the thread that runs through all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That in the first three chapters, we see the creation and the fall, but the rest of the book, rest of the books of the Scriptures are there to help us to see God's working out his redemptive plan in his people. And then Revelation is like the cap, the celebration, the restoration of all that was lost. That's what God is at work doing in our lives, in the life of the church, in his grander strategy in the world. As the wonderful counselor, he calls us to surrender to his lordship, to follow him as he continues the work that he began while on earth, but now accomplishes through his body, the people of God. And because the wonderful counselor is our sole king, he not only gives wise counsel, but he also delivers his plans for the world. He, he not only guides us, but he actually executes his divine purpose. You know, it's easy to be an advisor because you just simply advise and then let the chips fall. If the people do it or not, that's not up to them. But God not just gives us advice. He doesn't just give us advice. He actually accomplishes what he says he wants to happen. For in Jesus, all the plans and purposes of God reach their complete fulfillment. God's plans to forgive sin, defeat death, offer eternal life, and empower us to live to his glory are all found in Christ. God's eternal purpose, his goal is to establish the complete sovereignty and supremacy of his son over all things, beginning now until the end of time. So as we live in the light of this promise, we may, as John Calvin writes in his commentary, patiently pass through this life with its misery, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other doubts, content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph. See, a lot of times when I'm talking to people and counseling them, they don't see that picture. They see some other picture and I'll talk more about that at the end of my next point, but they don't see that he is king. And because they don't really believe he is king or act like he is king, they can't face all those things that Calvin talks about with any sense that God is going to do what he's, complete what he started, including in our lives, in these individuals. He even uses the sin and brokenness of our lives to draw us to himself. And finally, it matters that Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he is the confidential advisor of the individual believer. The Heidelberg Catechism describes Jesus as the high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. So when you think of the role of confidential advisor, that's kind of similar to the role we most often associate with the idea of counselor, right? The more modern concept of counselor. So what makes a good counselor? Well, 
I've been told by people I've worked with that someone who knows the truth but also knows what you're dealing with and knows that it's difficult but can empathize with you in that difficulty. Jesus is that counselor because as Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 reminds us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As our wonderful counselor, we can trust him to listen to our problems because he tells us, commands us, to bring our problems to him in prayer. And we can be sure that he is listening because he not only told us to pray about those concerns, scripture says that he intercedes for us at the Father's throne. And not only does he intercede for us at the Father's throne, he sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit in Romans talks about the fact that when we can't even put into words what is on our hearts to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs and groans too deep for words. Have you ever been there? I have. You don't even know what to pray. You can't put it into words, but the Spirit of God, we're promised, intercedes for us with sighs and groans too deep for words. So we can be sure that he's listening. And we can be sure that he intercedes for us. But unlike an earthly counselor, Jesus in his priestly role not only understands our desperate situation, but out of his great love for us, he did what we could not do. He secured our salvation by his death on the cross and his resurrection. Then this wonderful counselor sent another counselor, the Holy Spirit, to carry on his work in each one of our lives. While having godly spiritual counselors is helpful, I mean, I've done that and played that role with many people over my years in ministry. A certain level of counseling is available to us, each of us, by reading God's word and knowing and applying his will for us, which the scriptures call wisdom, and doing that through the empowerment of the spirit of God. One of my favorite writers on counseling, and I've read just about every book he's written, is Bob Kellerman, and he writes a lot about developing people like yourselves, members of congregation, to help one another, counsel one another, to do all those one another passages in the scriptures. Uh, he proposes a helpful way to think about letting Christ be our counselor. Although he doesn't exactly apply it specifically to this, it's an image that I've shared with others, in, which he shares in several of his books. Most of us are familiar with the idea of digitally cropping a photograph, right? You've been to Walmart, CVS, one of those places you've taken a photograph on a data stick and you, know, you put it down there and you had all this, this uh, you can do a lot of this at Christmas, right? After Christmas. You had pictures there, we've got extraneous things in it, you know, something here and there, so you wanna just focus in on the one thing. Maybe it's a grandchild or maybe it's something you, know, you wanna focus in on and you wanna crop everything else out. Now we do that, we do that with photographs, but we do that in our lives too. Sometimes we, crop, we take our lives and we crop it down to the, like, you know, bring it down like here and just focus in on the small things in our life, our sins and our problems. And uh, sometimes I was talking to Kathy on the way in and we're, sometimes we're just chatting and I was talking about this idea and one of the things you know, she said to me, and I think it's true and it, it didn't dawn on me, but that people who 
are suicidal, like at this time of year, sometimes what they do is they crop this, their image down to almost a point in their lives where the, all they can see is the despair and the hopelessness and they can't see anything else. But instead of cropping things down, we need to do what Kellerman says, to crop things out. We need to bring more into the picture and the thing that we need to bring more into the picture is putting Christ back into the frame of our mental and relational world. Because sometimes we crop him out. Even though we're believers, we just crop him out. We don't think about the fact that all these promises that I've just read to you are promises that apply to every single one of you every single day who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what your problem, no matter what your issues, no matter what the problems of somebody else that may be dealing, you may be dealing with, it's all crisis in that frame. We need to reframe our thinking seeing things from his perspective and reorienting our hearts towards him. We reorient our hearts by shaping our lives around the ideas and stories that best express our understanding of the way things really are. And for Christians, those forming realities are the truths of the gospel. We need to remember that as our prophet, his word is relevant and sufficient in all of life. Sometimes we proclaim that, but we don't act it. We need to remember that as our king, he's our good, wise, and sovereign ruler who even uses our sin and suffering to form and transform us. We need to remember that as our priest, he was victorious over sin and death in his life, death and resurrection, and he passes that victory to us through our faith in him. I think it's providential that uh, and I'm sure there's more than just providence, but certainly is providence, that Advent and Christmas fall during a time of darkness. The stark contrast between the darkness of winter's depths and the lights of Christmas remind us of the great light that Isaiah promised would come. The light of Christ, the Messiah, will deliver us from the present reign of darkness brought on by human sin and point us toward a future glory through supernatural wisdom beyond human limits. So what does Isaiah's prophecy say to us today? Well, if you're a seeker this morning who has joined us, thanks for being here with us. We pray that God's Spirit has touched your heart in some way. What does our text ask of you? Is Jesus your wonderful counselor? The answer begins with knowing him, not just knowing about him, but accepting the truth about who he is. The one who created the universe and understands the design of everything and wants to restore the beauty and peace of that design in your life. Do not rest on your own counsel, but choose to connect with the wisdom of the wonderful counselor. John Oswald summarizes it well when he writes, the contemporary significance of this passage of scripture comes down to this. Have we allowed the child king to take over the government of our lives? Only then can we know the benefits of God with us. We cannot have the light, the honor, the joy, the abundance, the integration that he offers in any other way. Now for those of us who are believers, the prophet Isaiah asked us to consider the promise that when we are, were lost and in need of hope, God's answer to the darkness and our need was a child. But not just any child. What child is this who laid to rest in Mary's lap is sleeping? It is Christ the King, 
our wonderful counselor, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. E.J. Young paraphrases Isaiah's message in this way. There is great rejoicing among God's people because God has broken the yoke of burden and oppression. And the burden and oppression are removed because the weapons and garments of the warrior are destroyed. And the basic reason for these blessings is that a child is born. People of God, this is the promise of Advent. Jesus the Messiah became one of us and gave his life for us on the cross, a cross whose shadow always falls across the Christmas manger, for it was that reason that he came. He understands our trials and our temptations. His love and commitment to us is unshakable. And as our wonderful counselor, he promises to lead us into all wisdom and truth, to sovereignly and lovingly fulfill his plans for our lives, even in the darkest days, and to listen and intercede for us, serving us, serving us as our wise counselor. Rejoice, for you no longer are bound by the burden and oppression of sin and its consequences in this fallen world. Christ Jesus, the wonderful counselor, has come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the names that you have revealed to us. And in the next several weeks, we're going to go through those, and we're going to study them together. We pray that you would help us to understand that each of those names has significance in our lives and to grab a hold of the promises of Advent as we celebrate this season and as we expectantly wait for and celebrate the first coming of your son, we also expectantly celebrate and look forward to his return. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>